the clients that I know from last really long years, um, I just openly ask them, you've been on Substance, I understand. Well, what do you think of, you know, your life? What do you want to do? What do you want to achieve in your life? Are you going to be around this? With the youngster boys and girls, I just straight away pull them on side. Look, there's a substance. It's a weekly injection, monthly injection. You should come try. And they really um, looked me surprised. They were like, oh, this person really want help us or this person really want us to be off. They replied me that they really wants to get off this substance, but this substance wouldn't leave them alone. I assured them, I said, come, we try, and then we see how you go. And most of them came back and they're like, oh, wow, we're not craving for anything. And it's really working. Like they started with weekly, then they started with fortnightly, started with monthly. And to be honest, I don't see them anymore. <laughs> and I'm, I'm really feel proud of that. So this is the buprenorphine? Yes. Hi, I'm Michelle Ransom-Hughes. Welcome back to Nobody Dies Here. If you're joining the series now, go back to episode one. It's designed to be heard from the beginning. This time, we're stepping into zone four, the consulting area, or consulting. This is where you find help when you're ready to talk about changing your substance use. You might remember the EMSA is a roughly oval-shaped building, and most visits, people move through zones one, entry, two, injecting, and three, aftercare, and then out the door. But there are those who have their shot and then have other business in the building, maybe seeing a doctor or a specialist. So after recovering in zone three, they'll come via the internal corridor round here to zone four. Others, usually people on pharmacotherapy treatments, which we'll talk about later, cut through directly to the consulting room from zone one without having had an injection at all. This episode, we're going to explore how the EMSA is so much more than an overdose prevention site. Zone 4, it's quiet here, it's relatively spacious, there are doors to little clinic rooms, armchairs and health tip brochures here and there. You might think, so what? It's a health clinic. But this place was designed for people who, on the whole, are far from comfortable seeking support in a medical setting. So the services here are not like regular clinics. For starters, these services are designed to be exceptionally easy to access. As medical director, Dr. Nico Clark explains. That typically means getting things done in the shortest possible time with the least number of steps, with the least number of interactions with different people, um, you know, in a way that doesn't necessarily require appointments because appointments are a challenge for many of our clients. No appointments? A different approach to medical care 
wouldn't you say? We see this in action in the EMSERS Epoch Clinic. This is where they tackle a very common health problem among people who inject drugs, bloodborne viruses. There's a small amounts of HIV and hepatitis B, but at the moment that the main virus is hepatitis C. Because it's, it's a very easily transmitted virus, it can live at room temperature for several days and you only need tiny amounts of it in order to um, pass on the infection. Hep C can be passed by just sharing a tourniquet, you know, sharing a spoon when you're mixing up drugs, those sorts of things. You know, let's be clear, it's not just injecting drug users who get Hep C. You can get Hep C from um, tattoos, unclean pedicure equipment. Even so, people who inject drugs are a high-risk group for bloodborne virus infection and transmission, which is why for decades needle and syringe programs have been educating people about the risks. The trouble is, knowing you need to always use new equipment doesn't mean you'll always have it to hand. And however you contract hepatitis C, over time, this virus can do deadly work to a body. Ongoing acute infection can then lead to severe scarring of the liver, so fibrosis and cirrhosis, and then that can lead to liver failure, other liver disease or liver cancer. Hepatitis in general is the um, leading cause of liver cancer in in the world. Aiming for low infection rates in the client cohort of the EMSA just makes sense. Exactly. So it's a public health initiative. And injecting drug community has been, up until now, more difficult to engage than other um, members of our community. But we we are running a research project um, which is in conjunction with St Vincent's Hospital. And the main thing we're, we're doing with the project is... Um, trialling a new way of testing for hep C using a finger stick test rather than um, vein bloods to diagnose hep C. A lot of our clients have not had good experiences with pathology services or with um, in-hospital settings. If they have been injecting for a long time, their veins mightn't be in very good condition um, and so they're wary of having blood tests but for a lot of clients, they really jump at the chance to have a test if it's just a finger stick test. The team will take vein bloods if they can to run multiple tests, but a hep C diagnosis can be made with that simple finger stick test. Um, the vein bloods have to go off to a pathology service so they can take a week or two to come back. Um, the finger stick test only takes an hour to get the result. Yes, she did say that. People can get their results in an hour. If someone does test positive, we can then prescribe treatment um, through the gastroenterology department at St Vincent's Hospital. And that prescription will be sent to a local pharmacy in Richmond. And that pharmacy has been wonderful in sending the uh, treatments down to our our service, which we can then provide to clients. So it just means that the barriers of attending gastro doctors or specialist appointments or pharmacies is eliminated a little bit and and we can sometimes do the same day treatment. So how long does the process of eliminating hep C take? Well there's two main drugs that we use. One requires treatment for two months and the other one for three months. So it's pretty good. (laughs) That's amazing. It is amazing. 
and they are 98% effective if you remember to take them every day with very few side effects. A person can be completely cured of hep C in 8 to 12 weeks via a streamlined process, which on the outside could include up to a dozen separate steps and countless bills. Dispelling myths around hep C treatments is also part of the job, especially while fear and loathing of the old hep C treatments still lingers. It used to be almost feel like a death sentence because the older drugs were so um, horrible to have to take. Interferon was a, a drug that would could lead to severe depression and fatigue and all sorts of debilitating side effects, whereas these days we've got um, these direct-acting antivirals that are really just popping a pill every day. I often use the line that there's never a better time to have hep C. We've tested thousands of people and not everybody we've tested has elected to go on to treatment or we lose them to follow up. But a lot of clients we can follow up or we try to and um, yeah, it takes up a lot of our day. You know, some of our clients live very chaotic lives and it's quite difficult for them to um, remember to take their treatment or they might lose a bottle of meds or um, any number of things can happen where the treatment might be interrupted. Uh, So quite a big part of our follow-up job is is keeping track of where people are up to with their medications. making sure that they have a test when they're finished and, um, and yeah, just sort of keeping up with people. Clients are often aware that they've got hep C and that they, they might have been diagnosed 20 years ago. And it's something that they've sort of buried and put in the too hard basket because hep C doesn't have immediate health implications. It has long-term health implications. But if we um, can encourage them to get onto treatment and they are cured of hep C, which is nearly always the case with our new treatments, I'm, you know, I'm always astounded at how happy they are. There's this physical sense of relief, like, oh, you know, I've done this. And so then they think, oh, now I might look at, you know, trying to fix my teeth or, you know, get on with another health problem. Why does it surprise you that they're so happy? Well, I suppose because we take looking after our health for granted, or, or, or a lot of us do, you know, we don't see it as a big barrier to go to a doctor if you're not feeling well or to, to, to have a checkup for an, an annual checkup, say, for, for cholesterol or whatever it might be. But um, for a lot of our clients, they really haven't had good access to. Uh, health services so it's it's a big barrier and and it, I think it's really tied into that self-worth thing that if you if you don't have a, a good sense of self-worth you don't think that you're worthy of of being well um, a lot of people who come in here don't have anyone to care for them so they really appreciate that someone's sort of you know Not nagging, but, you know, sort of gently nudging towards towards more optimum health outcomes. (laughs) For someone coming from outside, there's a lot to absorb about the types of 
language that's used. Mm. So that was a good example of it just there. Like, yeah. Um, putting things in a positive light so people don't feel ashamed or yeah. Yeah. bad about the position they're in, often through no fault of their own. Exactly. Yeah, it is often through no fault of their own. There are more than 6,000 people registered at the EMSA. Many of them aren't receiving regular health care. Medical conditions are often left untreated until people become acutely unwell. And when some EMSA clients present at emergency, they often don't receive the care they need or they're treated poorly because of their substance use, especially if hospitals have zero-tolerance policies for drug-affected patients. At the EMSA, Hawkeye staff in Zones 1, 2 and 3 are alert to things like fresh wounds or rashes and signs of more serious illness. And when they spot someone in need of help, they'll gently encourage them to come around to consulting. Here, without an appointment, they can see a nurse practitioner, a GP, or perhaps chat with a harm reduction practitioner. Health professionals who get it, who can synthesise injecting drug use into the bigger picture of a person's life. But I was interested to know, bloodborne virus risks aside, does long-term heroin use do to someone's health? So heroin itself, if you don't have, you know, periods of hypoxia through overdose, the heroin itself is relatively harmless. It can lead to some dry mouth and some oral health challenges. But if you kind of keep your mouth well moistened and brush your teeth, then you don't necessarily have oral health problems. But many of our clients have terrible oral health problems. In fact, I think they're the population with the worst oral health out of any identified population. And that's something we really can and should uh, do something about. But outside that, heroin itself doesn't cause particular problems uh, other than people lose con- control over their capacity to, to use heroin and, and they might do things which they don't want to do to, to get the money for that heroin. And, and that combination of that strong desire, that lack of capacity to, to regulate their substance use, but which, which we call kind of addiction or dependence, that issue per se is is the kind of the next most common thing which people you know request our support for, and that's something which is easily treatable by providing access to a stable, um, safe opioid alternative. You heard that right. The heroin itself is relatively harmless if you don't go without oxygen by overdosing. You could never say that overdosing is harmless. And the effect of multiple overdoses is serious indeed. So any period of hypoxia, say for more than five minutes, will likely to result in some brain damage. It's not uncommon for people to say, "I had a, you know, I had a major overdose, and I was, uh, uh, I was found and revived." But people have said, "I'm not the same as I used to be," and to have some kind of personality change. 
So many of the people who use the service here have a degree of kind of um, brain dysfunction or kind of brain injury, acquired brain injury, you might say. And some of that is likely to be due to, you know, cumulative or even the single hypoxic episode or cumulative minor hypoxic episodes. Um, it can also be due to banging your head. So if you if you have uh, knocks to the head, whether from fighting or hitting your head on the pavement, if you if you fall or if you, even if you kind of have an overdose and knock your head, uh, and it can be due to the substance, um, less so opiates, but more so other substances like alcohol and methamphetamines. Other typical health effects seen at the MSER fall into the mental health category. Anxiety, depression. You know, there's a, there's a side to all of us that has a tendency for loneliness. I mean, you know, I've never directly asked this question, but sometimes when I'm talking to people, I get the sense they're lonely or they've, they're in, in pain. And I'm talking more like emotional pain than physical pain, although we actually we often get clients who've become addicted to, um, to medication that they've been prescribed for chronic pain. And, and then that medication has, has been ceased. And so they turn to street drugs to, um, because of their addiction. Pain does take many forms, but I think um, for a lot of our clients, it might be more an emotional uh, or psychological pain than physical pain that they're feeling. And, and when people open up to us, we often hear terrible stories of past trauma, um, so sexual abuse, uh, domestic violence, uh, some, some traumatic event that's happened in their childhood, not you know perhaps they haven't had a, re- a loving family around them as they were growing up. So a lot of them are trying to perhaps deal with the trauma that's come out of a, a not great childhood, and it's painful. You know, just as many of us turn to alcohol to try and numb our fears and pain, other people turn to to drugs and um, it doesn't always work out to be a good long-term solution. But still people do maintain that practice of injecting drugs over decades successfully. Yeah, so some people um, can manage injecting drugs for their whole life and they can live a really productive and full life. Other people, it can, same as alcohol, I keep comparing it to alcohol, it gets a real grip on them. And so um, their life starts to crumble around them and the drug becomes the main thing in their life. But I've got to say I haven't met anybody who has been really caught up in that uh, addiction cycle who hasn't expressed a desire to get out of it to leave it so you know there probably isn't a day that goes by if I get chatting in a in a nice um, secure way with somebody um, that they don't say I really want to change this I mean it's really is hard to sort of um, convey just how much of a hole some people have fallen into 
Um, you know, if you've if you've lost your family, if you've had your children taken away from you, you've lost touch with the rest of your family. You haven't got a roof over your head. You haven't got a job. You don't know where your next money's coming from. Um, it can be really difficult to to feel hopeful about anything, really. And I'm in a particularly good position at the moment because I'm um, involved in a research study where we're asking questions. We've got privacy. We've got, I've got half an hour of time with them. Um, people start to open up and and they um, often express this desire to change. Um, and I like to think that I, c- I can help give them some hope that that is possible. For instance, quite often um, someone will say that they have children um, but they're not in their care. The children have been uh, moved into foster care or or are with a, a partner and it hasn't been a good um, relationship breakup uh, and they'd really love to see their kids again. So then you can start to explore, well, what would you have to do you know, for that for that to happen. Say someone says to one of the staff, I've, "I'm done. I want to talk about getting off." What would be the next step? Yes, and that happens on average every day. Once a day, we have somebody who who starts um, opiate pharmacotherapy in our service at the moment. And it's typically like you've just said, they said, look, I've been using for 25 years and I've had enough. It doesn't do anything for me anymore. It kind of did initially. I've just been doing this for the last 10 years because I, I can't see how to stop. I can't see any other way. And then they might say, look, I've tried going down the drug treatment route and they'll describe an experience of they had to ring this number, go to this place, come back the next day go and get a photo, go to this pharmacist. And then I didn't have the five bucks to get my methadone on that day. And the pharmacist said, no, you've got to, I can't give it to you or your prescriptions run out. And you, and they describe a kind of uh, an interaction with the healthcare system, which has just left, left them feeling like they don't want to go down that path again. And then they'll say, but you know, my mate's got on this new injection here and he says it's great. And I thought, well, maybe I'll give it a go. And then we'll, we'll try and sit down with people on the spot, have a chat, talk about what the options are, if that's something that they want to do, and then we'll try and make that happen as soon as possible. And then typically that means starting the next day. A response as rapid as this is not historically how getting on heroin treatments has played out. You know, the options for the treatment of heroin dependence are... Um, to provide an opioid in a, in, 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 a, in a safe way, as I was talking before, or to kind of detox people. And, and detox is really a risky thing for people who've been using heroin because it, it takes away their tolerance to opioids. And then if they do use again after that, they're really at high risk of overdose. So while it's people's ultimate goal to ultimately not be using opioids, it's often not the best place to start. And the, and the safest way to start is to provide safe opioids for people that they can consume with and, and then get on with their lives. And, and when they've kind of, you know, their life is at a state where they no longer uh, feel the desire to, to use uh, heroin, for example, uh, 
and then to kind of talk about kind of you know detoxing from opioids so for the majority of people it, it it's a choice between methadone and buprenorphine and and in uh, which you can either pick up from a chemist every day or we've got this uh, buprenorphine injection that you can have once a month if you're looking to break the cycle you want to stop hanging out these pharmacotherapies will likely do the job. On the one hand, there's methadone, fairly well known in this country as an opioid replacement. Um, methadone is similar to heroin in, in, in that it binds to opioid receptors and can fully turn them on. Uh, and if you take too much methadone, you'll stop breathing. The, the main difference between methadone and heroin is that it's very long lasting. When you take it every day, you just have this stable opiate effect. You don't have the highs and lows. You don't have intoxication. You don't have withdrawal. You just have this stable opiate effect. Your body adapts to that effect. You're not sleepy. You're not withdrawing. You feel normal. Uh, you look normal and you can go about your day. You can drive a car. You can you know, do whatever you need to do. On the other hand is buprenorphine or bup. There are two different kinds. One you take orally or under the tongue, and there's a newer form, the long-acting injectable buprenorphine. Bup works differently to methadone. It's got very little of that sedating effect, and this is the kicker. It takes away the craving for heroin or other opiates. It's different in the way that it acts to kind of most other opioids, but you know, in terms of how it, it kind of makes you feel, it, it kind of has a, a similar capacity to prevent you going into opiate withdrawal and to kind of enable you to get on with your life. If you're injecting heroin mostly to avoid the sickness that comes when you stop injecting heroin, these prescribed drugs could hold obvious appeal. The majority of our clients at the moment uh, are going for their once a month buprenorphine um, treatment option. And if they do the job, how long a person might swap out heroin for these opioid replacements is highly variable. Yeah, look, it, it, it entirely depends on their circumstances and what they want to do with their life. So we have, you know, all range of people coming to this service. A substantial percentage of the people who come here have had enormous early life trauma, multiple different kinds of abuse, every kind of horrible situation you can imagine. Uh, people uh, end up in uh, using heroin and coming to uh, our service. And, you know, they some people get over those life experiences and, you know, they give them um, the capacity to empathise with other people who've had them and, and they can get on with their lives and form healthy relationships. 
for other people, it's enormously difficult to kind of recover from that. And that's something that might take uh, years or they, you know, they might, you know, they might never feel like they're in a space where they can be sure that if heroin's around, they won't want to use it. Whereas other people, they're, they're kind of, it's much easier for them to kind of make decisions around their opioid use than not necessarily have, have experienced a similar degree of early childhood trauma. And they might take a couple of months treatment and never look back. Uh, whereas for another group of people, it might be decades. So it, it entirely depends on what experiences have happened in the past and what people do in the future. Are they able to um, get a different set of friends? Are they able to get find a place to live? Are they able to find something meaningful to do? Are they able to have any physical or mental health issues addressed? And it's, you know, it's, that's, that capacity to sort out those various other aspects of their life, which will then determine how long they need to stay on something like methadone or buprenorphine for. I often describe it a little bit like, um, uh, in, in terms of quantum physics, in a way that there are various stable kind of um, uh, energy <laughs> cycles that things exist in. So if you look at uh, electrons, they, they tend to exist in one orbit or another orbit, but not so much time in between. Heroin use for many of our clients is a stable orbit that it gives them, it kind of gets them out of bed every day. They kind of, they keeps them busy, provides phys physical exercise, uh, provides a network of social contacts, uh, it provides period of the day when they feel good, even if not for the whole day. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's, it's a life with you know multiple facets and if people just stop using heroin they, let's say we can enable them to do that with methadone or buprenorphine they don't necessarily have an alternative social network they don't necessarily have something to do um and uh that's that's not a kind of a stable uh, set of uh, life circumstances for people so if if you're going to kind of help people stop using heroin, I think you need to look at all those other elements. If somebody's got a stable place to live, if they've got other people that they can support them, if they've got something to do that's meaningful, whether it's work or otherwise, if they haven't got various physical or mental health issues that are kind of making their life difficult, then they can transition to a kind of another orbit, if you like, when they've got a, a different life. The, the spaces in between are more difficult for people. When we're supporting people to make a change to one element of their life, like stopping heroin use, we really need to provide the full range of supports to make, make that it's a kind of a, a jump to having a house and something to do and all their health care all at the same time. What sort of things can't you help them with given that? There's all of those needs. Oh, look, the only thing we don't have is employment support, and I would like to work on that. Sometimes people say that they're not, you know, sure what they'd like to do. You know, we've got some plans to try and work with that group to kind of provide a range of options for kind of help keep people busy doing things that are meaningful to them. Wow, you're pretty close to a one-stop shop, aren't you? That, well, that was what people said they wanted. When, when uh, we knew we were going to be have the opportunity to provide this injecting room here. We had a consultation with the people who are injecting drugs in the area and said to them, what do you want? And they said uh, they want a one-stop shop where they can access the full range of services. What time are you planning to come in tomorrow for your 
Um, I'm not sure. Is there a time I should come in? So between 10 and 4. Oh, yeah, yeah, fine. Yeah, no problem. Do it. Given that um, this is really an anomaly in a government health service, what does it say about our society that this this is so unusual to provide a place where you can use a pseudonym, you can you don't have to make appointments, you can you know fail in in one of a better word at a treatment and come back and have another go. I think it shows that that uh, many of our social and health services are, are not designed around our end users as they much are designed around um, our kind of you know systems of decision making and funding and governance. Um, and while that's fine for for many people, I think there are a group of people for whom it, it, it benefits us to kind of uh, kind of redesign those around, around the people who who are using them, particularly for people who've you know experienced a kind of significant early early childhood trauma, and and so that's why we have this concept of kind of trauma informed care to how do how do you provide services to people who. Who've um, had that trauma, and who who kind of have, and that trauma has made it difficult for them to to kind of go through the administrative steps of kind of accessing services in in a more administratively challenging way. But I think it does tell us about the gaps in our system, who's falling through the cracks in our treatment system, and 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 it gives us opportunities to kind of you know redesign some of those elements based on what's working here. What's working here in Zone 4 is straightforward. People who inject drugs get help they desperately need and haven't been able to access elsewhere. It was pointed out to me that the care given here is pragmatic. Pragmatic wasn't a word that first came to mind, but the more I think about it, the more I see how perfect it is. This model is about respecting the humanity of the person in front of you without judgment. Everything flows from there. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I thought we'd have said well before you met. So far, so good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. No worries. If you've got any questions or anything, just ask when you come in tomorrow. Yep. All right. We'll do. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. Oh, that's all. Good story. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, guys. Good to see you. Have a great Sunday. You Take too. care, man. Thank you to the people whose voices you heard in this episode. Nurse Jen, harm reduction practitioner Dylan, Head of Security Amri and Nico, the medical director. You could also hear the voices of staff who were on duty one Sunday in 2022, along with a very kind gentleman who allowed me to record his visit to Zone 4. Thank you. You can find links to further information and support along with music credits and other acknowledgements in the show notes. I really want to acknowledge Shelley Cogger, who did fact-checking for me this episode. Nobody Dies Here was recorded in Richmond on Wurundjeri land and produced in Mianjin, the land of the Yuggera Turrbal people. First Nations sovereignty has never been ceded. There are just a couple more episodes to come in this independent series. Make sure you follow the show so you don't miss them. If you'd like to show us some love, you can share the series. That'd be great. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or make a donation. Next up, my co-host Pudgy is back with the unforgettable Karen, a 72-year-old whose story you need to hear from her to believe. Thank you for listening.